ראיתי מכתב שלו שהוא כתב למשפחה שלו, והוא מתאר שם... I've seen a letter he wrote to his family, in which he is describing getting close to Jerusalem. It was all very difficult, the roads were windy, hard to navigate, but he writes to them, I can't even begin to describe my excitement. אני עכשיו מגיע לירושלים, ירושלים עיר הקודש. I am now about to enter Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem. אני זוכה להגיע לירושלים, שאלפיים שנה אנשים ייחלו ורצו ומבקשים כל יום. The place we've all dreamt about and longed for and, and spoken about in our prayers for 2,000 years. 2,000 years! And here I am, here. What a privilege. I myself am here. It was an extraordinary excitement. That's Rabbi Chanoch Tzvi Rubenstein, one of roughly 50 great-grandchildren of Rabbi Yitzchak Meir Itchemayer Levin, the foremost Haredi rabbi to have signed the Declaration of Independence. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by the Jerusalem Foundation and the Times of Israel. So Israel is 75, and we feel this is a moment for us to step back and take stock, to ask where we came from, where we are, and where, for God's sake, we're going. And in order to answer those questions, we decided to go back to the basics. Our series, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, looks at our founding moral compass, Megillat Ha'atzmaut, or the Declaration of Independence. 37 people signed Megillat Ha'atzmaut, and over the course of the past several months, our team has diligently tracked down and interviewed the closest living relative of each one of these signatories. We talked about their ancestors and families, about the promise of the Declaration, the places in which we delivered on that promise, the places in which we exceeded our wildest dreams, and also about the places where we fell short. And it is through these descendants of the men and women who, with a strike of a pen, gave birth to this country of ours, that we wish to learn something about ourselves. Today we'll meet Yitzchak Meir Levin and his great-grandson, Rabbi Chanoch Tzvi Rubinstein, He'll present one of the many political perspectives we'll be featuring throughout the series. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, 
and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet. But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. This week, we released our 50th wartime diary. Next week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Okay, we're back. Here's our senior producer, Yochai Meital, with Chanoch Tzvi Rubinstein, Yitzchak Meir Levin's great-grandson. Rabbi Yitzchak Meir Levin was, in every way possible, Hasidic royalty. He was born in 1893 in the Polish town of Gura Kalvaria, or as it's known in Yiddish, Ger. And not only was he the grandson of the third Gur Rebbe, the Sfas Emes, but he was also married to the daughter of the fourth Guru Rebbe, the Imre Emes. In 1930, at the age of 37, Rabbi Levin was appointed the head of the Polish branch of Agudas Yisroel, a Haredi political movement that in pre-war Europe had an estimated one million followers. Three years later, in November 1933, Levin was arrested. Reporting on this, quote, sensational news, the Doryom Daily revealed that the Polish police had found a baggie of possibly intoxicating substances in Levin's home. In fact, as it later turned out, it was a bag filled with soil taken from the grounds of Rachel's tomb. In the spring of 1940, the top rabbis of the Gure Hasidic court, who were wanted by the Gestapo, all went into hiding in Warsaw. An emergency message was soon conveyed to their followers in the United States and thus began a chain reaction that resulted in a handful of visas being smuggled into occupied Poland. These were, naturally, given to the leadership, including Levin, who reluctantly left behind children, grandchildren, and hundreds of thousands of followers, most of whom would ultimately be murdered by the Nazis. Levin arrived in Mandatory Palestine in May 1940. Once here, he founded and ran the Jewish Agency's Rescue Committee for European Jewry. In that role, he repeatedly clashed with secular Zionist leaders, who often found themselves in an impossible situation. While millions of Jews, including their own family members, were being slaughtered in Europe, 
They were busy trying to build a new society in the land of Israel, with extremely limited resources at hand. How do you decide what should take precedence? Levine's greatest nemesis was fellow future signatory of the Declaration of Independence and Israel's first interior minister, Yitzhak Greenboim, who went on record saying that not a single cent of the JNF's funds ought to be spent on rescuing Europe's Jews. During those first years in the land of Israel, Levine was forced to plot a path through the thickets of Jewish and Zionist politics. Should the Aguda party support the establishment of a state, or else adopt an anti, or at least a non-Zionist stance? His answer to this question would have lasting repercussions that continue to reverberate within Israeli society to this very day. As part of the dilemma, he and other Haredi leaders negotiated matters of religion and state, including, and perhaps most famously, the exemption for military service for 400 yeshiva students, Shetoratam Umanutam, or whose studying is, as the phrase goes, their trade. This compromise eventually ballooned into a widespread and controversial phenomenon with extensive social, political, and economic ramifications. In June 1947, Levine was among those who managed to secure what has come to be known as the status quo letter. In that now famous document, Ben-Gurion promised that Shabbat will be the official day of rest in the state-to-be, that kitchens and public institutions will be kosher, and that matters of marriage and divorce will adhere to the dictates of Orthodox Judaism. With these assurances in hand, Levine agreed to join Moetzet Ta'am and sign the Declaration, despite his many misgivings about its secular nature. Inking his name was perhaps made slightly easier by the fact that he didn't actually attend the declaration ceremony itself. On May 14, 1948, he was out fundraising for Agudas Israel in faraway New York City, and he only added his signature to the scroll later on. After the establishment of the state, Levine served as Israel's first minister of welfare. Four years later, he quit his cabinet post in protest over the notion of women serving in the IDF. In 1969, he also objected to the election of Golda Meir as prime minister, arguing that a female head of state would harm Israeli deterrence. He died in Jerusalem in 1971 at the age of 78 and was buried on the Mount of Olives. Here he is in a 1961 recording discussing his concerns regarding modern-day Israel. Whatever we're able to accomplish in the state, everything we build, every stone, every blade of grass, will gladden the heart of every Jew. But over the course of the last 2,000 years, we've forgotten our essence. That's what's missing in my opinion. When I was in the government, I told my colleagues, on at least four different occasions, that we need to sit down and educate ourselves about what it is to be Israel, about the meaning of being Israel. What is the content and what is the essence of Israel? I said this as soon as I entered the government, and now, after 13 years of statehood, we need, even more so, to remind ourselves what our vision is and what our mission should be. I have not a shadow of a doubt 
that the only answer, and we truly have no other path, is to return to the bedrock of our existence. שמי הוא חנוך צבי רובינשטיין, הנינין של הרב יצחק מאיר לוין, זצ"ל. My name is חנוך צבי רובינשטיין, and I'm the great grandson of רבי יצחק מאיר לוין. May the memory of the tzaddik be a blessing. רבי יצחק מאיר הכהן לוין was born in תרנ"ד, or 1893. When he was 13, he was engaged to his cousin, his uncle's daughter. That uncle, the Gurre Rebbe, was known as the elder Admor Megur, and was the leader of the Gur Hasidim for over 40 years. So my great-grandfather essentially grew up in the Rebbe's court, in his shadow, up until World War I. That's when he moved to Warsaw and himself became the leader of Haredi Jewry in Poland. In Tafshin, or 1940, my great-grandfather was living in Warsaw and was asked to serve on the Judenrat together with Adam Chernyakov. See, the two of them were Jewish leaders of very different kinds and represented very different Jewish communities. My great-grandfather was Haredi and Chernyakov was a secular engineer and politician. So the Nazis chose the two of them to lead their so-called Jewish council. But my great-grandfather immediately understood what that meant and tried to get out of it. He participated in the first meeting of the Judenrat and said that he couldn't possibly work for the Nazis. Even if, as the Nazis kept on saying, their intentions were good. He thought it was simply out of the question for him to collaborate with them. So he went into hiding. And he told Chernyakov, he said, look, I know you. You are an honest and decent man. You won't be able to go ahead with it. You won't be able to send fellow Jews to their death. And what can I say? That prophecy fulfilled itself. Two years later, in 1942, when the deportations from the Warsaw Ghetto began, Chernyakov just couldn't follow the Nazis' orders anymore and, well, took his own life. But by the time Chernyakov committed suicide in Warsaw, my great-grandfather Rabbi Levin was already long gone and far away. See, back in 1940, he went underground. The Nazis were searching for him everywhere. And then, at the end of that first terrible winter of 1940, he managed, together with his father-in-law, the Gure Rebbe, to escape. They got immigration certificates, fled via Italy, and made aliyah to the land of Israel during Passover of 1940. When he arrived in the land of Israel, he had to start from scratch. All of his followers, nearly a million Jews who shared his lifestyle and his aspirations, they all remained in Europe. And he was here, alone, a shepherd without a flock. And here he was thrown into a whole new reality, a whole new struggle. There were bitter disputes about a very simple question. 
What's our ultimate goal? Saving the Jews of Europe or building a Jewish state in the land of Israel? And as part of that, where do we direct our efforts, our funds? Yitzhak Greenboim, who was one of the heads of the Jewish agency, argued with great passion that we were working for the future state of Israel, for Zionism. And Rabbi Yitzhak Meir Levin, my great-grandfather, said the exact opposite, that we ought to work for the sake of the people, for the sake of Jews, and that saving the lives of those who are being murdered at Auschwitz is more pressing and more important, at least now, than investing in building the foundations of a state. He thought that should be the top priority. Despite all those deep arguments, he joined the leadership of the Yeshuv and, as such, signed the declaration. But to tell you that he did it wholeheartedly, <laughs> look, there were many things that he didn't agree with. Take the first line of the declaration, for example. The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Okay? Now, we know, and he knew, that that just isn't true. I mean, it's factually wrong. The land of Israel was not the birthplace of the Jewish people. The Jewish people became a nation much, much earlier when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And it's not that the statement in the declaration was some sort of oversight or mistake or something. It was written intentionally. And by whom? By people who had turned their backs on religion and didn't accept or didn't want to acknowledge the fact that we became a nation, an Am, at Sinai. So instead, they created a new origin myth, a Zionist one. And that's how we ended up with the declaration that claims that the land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Things like that made many Haredi people angry. And many of them turned their anger towards Rabbi Levin. They asked him how he could possibly sign a declaration that includes such heresies and blasphemies. You're lending your name to something that completely negates what's written in the Torah, they said. But he didn't see his signature as an affirmation of what was written in the declaration, no. Instead, he signed on for a vision of the future, not a description of the past. But yes, yes, there was definitely an ongoing struggle, both within the community and within himself, as to what to do. Should he sign a declaration or not? Should he join the government or not? Will it benefit the Haredi population, the, the Jews, or will it be ruinous? There were many voices in this debate. Some, I would even say most, claimed that by supporting the creation of the state, my great-grandfather was agreeing to a secular entity which stood in defiance of the Holy One, blessed be he. But my great-grandfather and his party, Agudat Israel, said, We didn't establish this state, and if this state, to our great dismay, does all sorts of secular and blasphemous things that go against religion and against Judaism, that still doesn't mean that we can just turn our backs on it and enter into our own cocoon or shelter. We need to be part of it, not because we share its vision and not because we're partners to its actions, even though in reality we are, but because following the Khurban, following the Holocaust, we simply have to do whatever we can to salvage Judaism. Once we have a state, he thought, the secular people will come down and realize that we aren't the enemy. They leave us alone and let us live our lives. 
So if that means that we have to sign a piece of paper here and there or that we have to join the government, that's okay, because it serves the larger goal, which is to live proper Jewish lives. That was my great-grandfather's way of thinking, and he acted accordingly. So he tacked on his signature. Immediately after the founding of the state, my great-grandfather was appointed to be the first minister of social services. And I'll tell you a story that will give you a sense of the kind of man he was. So, the Minister of Social Services is in charge of the welfare system. And one day, my great-grandfather was sitting in his office when a man showed up. And this man, he, well, he was missing both of his legs. May we never know such misfortune. Anyway, the guy came in, sort of hobbling on these wooden blocks, and asked to see the minister. He wanted help getting into a certain institute for handicapped people. So my great-grandfather's secretary came in and told him that there's a man outside with no legs, sort of limping on the ground. And Rabbi Levin got up out of his chair, walked out to greet him, and sat down on the floor and spoke to him at eye level. That's the sort of man he was. I myself grew up in Tel Aviv, and every morning when I'd walk from my home to my Talmud Torah, to the Bells Heider, I had to pass through Sheikhen Street. And what can I tell you? The, the revolution, yes, the revolution that's taken place in Tel Aviv, even just from the time I was a little kid till today, is a source of great pain for me. When I was a kid, we had secular neighbors, and we all lived together and respected each other. They knew, for instance, that we don't turn on the lights in the building stairwell on Shabbat, so they'd wait until we passed before turning on the light. And it wasn't a matter of religious coercion or because we, God forbid, ever asked them for such a thing. It was just the way they behaved, a sign of respect. But today, the secular and the religious are growing farther and farther apart. What can I say? We, the Haredis, are sort of viewed in the same way that the settlers see the Arabs in the country. I mean, the message is, okay, you're here, you want to study, you build this whole world of yeshivot, and that's fine. But carry your share of the national burden. What people don't understand is that we are carrying our share of the burden. We are pulling our weight. And it's a very difficult load to bear, a very heavy load. It's a burden that might not kill you, but it is a burden that's very hard to live with. After all, we have a mission. You know, Yosef Trumpeldor's famous last words were, it's good to die for our country. We don't agree with him. We don't want anyone to die. We think that the Jew must live, not die, in sanctification of God's name. But... And here's a big but. It's harder to live in sanctification of God's name 
then it is to die in sanctification of God's name. And our yeshiva boys, who are all living in sanctification of God's name, aren't shown any appreciation. They get no respect for their sacrifice. And it's a real sacrifice. A thousand times a day, they have to put aside their wishes, their, their desires, their material needs, all for what? For protecting our future by studying and preserving our tradition. So don't tell me that these yeshiva boys aren't carrying a load or aren't pulling their weight. They absolutely are. Let me give you a recent example. A few weeks ago, Aaron Barak, the former president of the Supreme Court, gave an interview to a Haredi newspaper. At the end of the interview, which took place at his home, the two journalists asked him whether, as a Jew who grew up in the Kovno ghetto, he'd like to put on tefillin. And Barak said he would. So they took out a pair of tefillin from their bag and wrapped it around his head and arm. There's a video of the whole thing online, you can watch it if you want. Anyway, look, uh, Justice Barak is definitely a talented man. Someone who has reached incredible heights and is important and respected by most people in this country and by almost everyone in the world. And here he was, standing wrapped in tefillin, reciting the Shema. Shema Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then the two reporters asked him to continue, to recite the next verse. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And what can I tell you? That's a basic verse, a fundamental one. Even my three-year-old daughter knows it by heart. And to tell you the truth, the great Justice Barak didn't really know it. And, well, that's painful for me. On the other hand, he's made other, even major contributions. Contributions to the people of Israel. So can we say that just because Aaron Barak can't recite basic prayers, he isn't carrying his share of the load? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Because sharing the national burden doesn't mean that everyone has to do the same thing. Every person contributes where they can. Our goal isn't to put Haredis on the Supreme Court. Haredis should be part of and lead rabbinic courts, that of course. But justices on the Supreme Court, they shouldn't be Haredi. I'm not looking for representation on secular courts, however important they might be. But I do hope that the justices on the secular courts will show understanding. Like take the issue of separation between the sexes in the public sphere, for example. People here call it, even the courts call it, religious coercion. But that's not it at all. Calling it that shows a total lack of understanding of who and what we are. We have absolutely no desire to force our way of life on anyone. If someone doesn't want to come to an event, which is only for men, or an event that 
it's only for women, or an event in which there's a separation between men and women, they don't have to come. No one's forcing them. But in the name of equality and all kind of other lofty ideals, the secular courts don't allow us to have segregated events in public spaces, even for our own community. They say that would be imposing our religion on everyone. Hadata, they call it. That's just so absurd. that we don't even have the strength, the wherewithal, to argue about it. It just shows a fundamental misunderstanding of our lives. So all I'm asking for are secular justices will be understanding of our lifestyle, will get us. That's all. To what extent do I believe that Israel has lived up to the ideals set forth in the Declaration of Independence? Well, um, look, the Declaration talks about Jewish immigration and the importance of Kibbutz Galuyot in gathering the exiles. And in that sense, it's been an incredible success. Truly, extraordinary. I mean, for that alone, it was worth founding the State of Israel. Even today, Jews from anywhere in the world can come here. And just imagine how significant that was in the early days of the state, when Jews all over the place were dispersed and shattered and, and destitute. And suddenly they had a homeland that welcomed them in. You should know, by the way, how hard we fought, Agudat Israel too, for every single immigration certificate. So, in that regard, in terms of Jewish immigration, we've totally fulfilled the promise made in the declaration. But at the same time, instead of ingathering the exiles and then safeguarding them, or in other words, preserving the variety of different Jewish traditions, The state took these immigrants and stripped them of their unique identities. They tried to make them into one kind of Jew, the kind of Jew that they saw fit. They took authentic and rich expressions of Judaism and tried to create a new Jew, a new Jewish people. So that's not the kibbutz galuyot we imagined. It's a Jewish immigration that tries to remove the Jewish part. It also pains me to see that some people try to rebrand the declaration as an anti-religious document. I mean, it isn't a pro-religious document and it isn't an anti-religious document. You know, today everyone's saying that the Declaration of Independence is the bedrock of our democracy. But the word democracy doesn't appear in the declaration. It says, of course, that the state will be based on the idea of equality for all. That, yes. But while the notion of Israel as a Jewish state is mentioned, the notion of Israel as a democratic state is not. And it's helpful that certain people take the declaration and turn it into an indictment against the Haredi way of life. After all, our Declaration of Independence promised freedom of religion and freedom of conscience to everyone, to all people of all religions. But we still sort of feel as if we're being allowed, almost as a favor, to live here and practice our religious lifestyle. There's a sense that our religion, or at least our brand of religion, isn't really tolerated. Now, 
the truth is we haven't yet figured out how to live together in the way that a single family with different family members lives together. I hope it will happen one day. Meanwhile, we maintain the hope that our Holy Messiah will come to this state and see all that we've prepared for him and he will be very, very moved. Mitch Ginsberg and Lev Cohen are the senior producers of Signed, Sealed, Delivered. Our staff also includes Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Adina Karpuch, Jamal Rishek, Hadas Kidron, Shoshana Sara, Shira Shans Khalil, Ross Bordeaux, Yael Ben Chorin, Jennifer Cutler, and Rotem Tzin. Sela Weisblum is our sound engineer. Adina Karpuch edited this episode. And Zev Levi scored and sound designed it with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Our music consultants are Tomer Kariv and DJ Yoni Turner. And our dubbers are Yoav Yefet and Jonathan Brenner. The episode was recorded in our very own Nomi Studios. You can catch up on all our regular Israel Story episodes, as well as the other signed, sealed, delivered minisodes on our site. IsraelStory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can and should also check out our home at timesofisrael.com slash podcasts. And of course, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at IsraelStory.org. This series is dedicated to the memory of my beloved father, David Harmon, who was a true believer in the values of the Declaration of Independence, in Zionism, in democracy, and most of all, in equality. I'm Mishi Harmon, and we'll be back next time with another installment of Signed, Sealed, Delivered and a completely different perspective on Israel's Declaration of Independence. Till then, shalom shalom, and yalla bye. In 1940, the Gure Rebbe and my great-grandfather, Rabbi Levin, escaped Europe and arrived in the land of Israel. And there's a nigun, a song, from those days, that has since become a central part of our community, something we sing all the time. It goes like this.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.